Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello there. It is good to be here. That's right. I don't know if that's uh, Carol or Gerald or both of you, but it is good to be here. I agree. I trust you can hear me. Is that right? Lovely, lovely. And Glay, I'm happy to see you on camera. I hope you're better. I trust you're better. That's great. That's great. And uh, look at all these, all these happy faces here. Hey, let's do that thing that we like to do, okay? Everyone, you're going to do it with me? Okay, I don't even need to explain it. I'm going to count to three, and then you know what to do. Okay, you ready? One, two, three. Hello. Hi there. Hello. Good afternoon. Hello. Shalom, shalom. All right, all right. Good. Nice to hear your voices. I think we could do better than that. Uh, let's call that a practice round. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm glad you agree. Uh, we'll call that practice round. So everyone just get ready with your finger on the mute button. And then I'm going to count to three. And then let's really like, you know, like just uh, express how happy you are to see each other. I, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty ecstatic about it. So here we go. One, two, three. Hello. 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 What Never fails. It's so good. <laughs> well, it's nice to see you, folks. Nice to see you. Um, this is uh, number three, uh, number three of six, and um, I'm I'm especially happy because because uh, Rav Shmuley is here, He's back from his uh, European uh, trip, and. Um, I just, uh, I just want to, in his presence, want to express my gratitude to him for, I, I said to him, I would like to teach. I, I, I imposed myself upon him and said, I would like to do a little bit of teaching. And, and he was uh, generous enough to, uh, to give me the opportunity. And I, uh, I'm grateful for it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this again in a few minutes, but you, you remember from the first session, right? The you know, why practice Judaism, you remember, right? Wake up, do good. Uh, so uh, when it comes to uh, doing good, uh, I, I don't know that there are many uh, role models uh, that, that come close to the kind of work that Shmuley does every day. I'm just thinking about the showers that uh, somehow he raised, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars to to provide showers for homeless people, you know, so that they could they could clean themselves. It's just extraordinary, you know, and all the other things that you see that he's doing all the time. So uh, that's what an inspiration he is for me. And uh, and if you all don't know what I'm talking about, you should you should just check look around online. And I'm sure there are many opportunities for you to get involved in the work that he's doing. Um, probably volunteering, supporting financially. Uh, just I'm sure there's lots of opportunities. So. Um, I really uh, feel fortunate to be able to say that uh, in, in his presence. Um, so, uh, so uh, you may remember also at the end of the first session, I, I invited people to consider uh, trying something, try, trying a, uh, some kind of practice, something you might want to work on. Um, so I'm just, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later as well. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, it doesn't matter. It's okay. We're not, we're not in that kind of school that you don't get in trouble for not doing the homework. It's fine. Um, but, uh, but, but, but I want to, I want to loop back to that as well a little bit later. Um, but, uh, before we kind of dive in, I just, I, anything anyone wants to say, maybe in the time since we met last week, maybe something has come up or a question or a reflection or just want to create a little bit of space uh, to see if uh, there's anything bubbling up that people would like to, to share or talk about or ask. Okay, great. Well, I guess that means uh, we can move ahead. Is that, is that yes? We're in agreement. We can move ahead. Okay. So look, th this next hour, like, uh, or next 51 minutes, um, you know, you could spend it however you want. I remember I once had a teacher 
who uh, who said that he said that he didn't mind if people fell asleep when he would teach because at least he knew they got something out of the experience. Um, so I think I heard that from Benny Friedman. Um, and uh, yeah, I kind of agree with that. You know, however you want to spend the time is fine. Uh, you know, I'm over here, you're over the over there. Uh, but I do want to make an, an invitation to you, and that is that uh, for, for the next 51 minutes, you don't have to do anything else. You, you, you don't have to perseverate about anything. You don't have to ha have your phone on and be uh, distracted by it, you know, constantly <laughs> trying to get your attention. You, you don't even have to worry about something that's coming, you know, later in the day or tomorrow. You, you don't have to do anything else. The only thing you have to do is just be here. Just be here. And um, the, the guarantee I'll make is if you can just do that for now 50 minutes, you're going to feel great at the end of it. And it will pay dividends, not because of anything I'm going to say, probably because of things that you'll say, but certainly not because of anything that I'm going to say, but just because you'll have given yourself a gift uh, in the midst of, uh, of, of a day to just, to just be, uh, to just see what comes up, you know, to pay attention to what you hear, to see what thoughts come up in your mind, see how you feel about stuff and just, without any judgment or without any need to accomplish anything. Um, just you get to be here. So that's the invitation. Again, you, you could do whatever you want, but the invitation is just to be here. I, I promise you that that's all I'm going to do for the next 49 minutes. I'm just going to be here with you. I'm going to, you know, I have an outline. You've seen that. I mean, I have some slides, but like, I don't know what's going to come up. You know, it's just, we're just, we're just going to kind of, take it as it comes. So um, if you're wondering, you know, what does this being here mean? Let me let me just help you out a little bit. Let me help you with a little bit of being here. So maybe right now while you're listening to me talking, maybe you can also cast your attention down to your feet and you can just feel uh, your feet uh, on the ground. My feet are, I have a nice cushion. I have a foot cushion down here because why not, you know? And uh, maybe you could just feel, you know, like tingling along the bottom of your feet. You can feel the texture of the sock that you're in or the shoe, or if you're on some carpet, or maybe you're on a hard floor, but just, just, just taking a moment and say, hey, I, I can feel my feet, you know, having that kind of interoceptive awareness, you know, of what, what it feels like in your body um, at the, at the perimeter of uh, of the the meeting point of your body and whatever it is is beyond the body. So that that's what I mean. Just just being present to your body and maybe if you're tired of paying attention to your feet, although you know they're endlessly fascinating, uh, you could do the same thing just with your breath. You could just take a couple of moments and just find your breath. Like just just take note of the fact that the body is breathing, right? You're not doing anything about it, really. Your body doesn't need you at all. It's just, it's just going along and breathing perfectly fine all by itself. And uh, just try to find somewhere in your body where you can very easily locate your breath. You might find it in your abdomen. Maybe when you breathe in, you can feel your abdomen expand and then contract when you breathe out, you know? If that's not working for you, you can you can rest your attention on your chest. Feel your chest rising as you breathe in and lowering as you breathe out. Or maybe, maybe right up here, feeling the air coming into your nostrils. And back out again and just, you know, I mean, uh, isn't that something? Isn't that something? You got another breath. You got another breath. So that's it. That's all I mean. It's just just, just being attentive to uh, to how how it feels while we're here together uh, for the next forty seven minutes. Okay. So let's begin. Let's begin. Um, so this is what we're gonna do today, uh, session three. So we're gonna do session two. Actually, we're gonna do session uh, one and two summary. Just a quick summary of what we've done. Very quick. And then we're going to get to the, the second and third part of part two. Here it's the first and second part. We did the first part last week. So we're going to talk about rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook. 
And we're going to break that down. We're going to talk about what, what does it mean to read the Torah? How do we read the Torah? And then we're going to say something about spiritual handbooks. What's a spiritual handbook? And then we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to do practice zero. Practice zero is a kind of a generic uh, uh, form of practice, um, but it also will serve as an example of how we're going to read some texts from the Torah in the next three sessions. So the way it's worked out, you know, I thought all the material we, we're going to do in these three sessions, we cover in the first session. Okay, I misjudged that. But the way it's worked out is the first three sessions are kind of orientation. And uh, and the second three sessions will be the practice, you know. So um, it's like when you read a good book, you know, like a great a great fiction book and you know you have to wait two thirds in because the Easter egg is going to come. You know you have to you have to wait. You have to wait. The Easter egg will come in in, in session four when we do uh, when we do the, the practice itself. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's just review uh, session one and session two. So session one, uh, we covered three basic topics, right? Why practice? And I suggested the reason we practice things. There are many many definitions of practice, but the reason we practice things is to become habituated to become habituated to certain things and to cultivate skill. Uh, so to, to habituate ourselves, to, to do them often um, and to do them as a habit, to do them kind of to, so that they become natural, they become part of our way of being. And skillful, yes, actually to become good at them. Yes, you can. I know it's, it's not very you know, popular these days to say these kind of things, but you can be better or worse at things. It's true. Now, being worse at something that doesn't make you a bad person or no one should make you feel bad about it, but you can get better at things. So that's skillfulness. OK, so that's why we practice. Why practice Judaism already covered it. Wake up, do good. Right. You remember Jacob, right? Vayomer Yaakov, right? Jacob said, right, surely Adonai is in this place. And I didn't know. Right. That's the that's the kind of. Uh, you might say the founding spiritual moment of the Jewish tradition. Yeah. So wake up, wake up. Something's happening here, folks. I'll tell you what's happening. We're alive and it's not going to last forever. Right. So wake up, wake up. Um, now you're awake. What are you going to do about it? Okay. Do good. That's it. That's the whole, that's it. You know, if, if that person had come and asked me, you know, to teach them the Torah standing on one leg, I mean, I have all due respect to, you know, uh, Akiva who said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And oh, Hillel, Hillel said, love your neighbor as yourself. And I also understand Shammai, you know, kind of bonk him over the head and telling him to get lost. I understand that too. Um, but uh, I would give a different answer. I would say, uh, if you want to understand the whole Torah standing on one foot, you know, to boil it down, I would say, wake up, do good. That's it. That's it. Um Say Ulmad, you know, go learn. The rest is commentary. Okay, that's second. Third, what's special about the 21st century? Because the title is Practicing Jewish Judaism in the 21st Century. What's special about the 21st century is Oi, right? Which doesn't mean there hasn't been Oi in every century, uh, at least for, you know, 70,000 years since the Cognitive Revolution. Um, but but we're in a very peculiar kind of Oi because, uh, because climate change is real, and the threat to our species, let alone the thousands of other species that have already uh, uh, become extinct and will still uh, continue to be uh, uh, come extinct in the, in the coming decades and centuries. But oi, the 21st century is uh, it's serious stuff, it's serious stuff. It's sobering. Uh, if you need sobering, it's sobering. So that was session one. That was session one. Any questions about that? Any, you know, Comment, reaction, points of clarification. Clear? Yes? Clear. Great. Great. That's that's what I'm looking for. Clarity. You don't have to agree with me, but I'd like you to understand me. That's all. Okay. All right. Session two. Session two was about the Torah. We spent the whole session pretty much talking about what, the, what is the Torah? You know, and we shared. It was beautiful, beautiful uh, sharing. People uh, shared what the Torah means to them. And we heard some really wonderful things about the way um, it informs our lives. And then I and then we talked about the history. And I and I shared with you, you know, to the best of my judgment, what I find to be the most convincing scholarly uh, claim for the uh, the origins and the appearance of the Torah as we know it, the five books of Moses, and that it appeared that it came into being. It was it was intentionally produced 
um, uh, in, in the post-destruction and post-exile period, which is to say after the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians in 586 BCE, sometime probably in the mid-5th century BCE, let's say 450, at the time of Ezra, okay? That was number one. Uh, two, it was in the context of imperial uh, power uh, that had a, a, a ruling influence over the land of Israel, in particular the Persian Empire and the Hellenistic Empire. And you may remember that the Persian Empire required uh, those nations that it ruled over to have their own kind of constitution and law code, which created the conditions for the Torah to be produced as a book of law. And the Hellenistic culture was the first culture um, that revered books as a kind of status symbol of the culture. And so the, the Jews, the Israelites living under the uh, Hellenistic rule um, were influenced by that. And, and that's how the Torah became such a significant book, a document uh, for the Israelites. So this was a, this was, uh, it was produced um, both in the, in the wake of a profoundly traumatic experience that had happened, you know, three, four, five generations before, profoundly traumatic. Remember, Josephus says a million Israelites were murdered uh, during the destruction of the first temple. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's the second temple, actually, but uh, the numbers are, are high. Um, I think, I think that's incorrect. He's not talking about the, the first temple. Uh, but still, an enormously traumatic. Uh, you can just read the stories in the in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, enormously traumatic experience. Both the destruction of the central uh, religious center, um, and also the forced exile. That's number one. Number two, the the influence of uh, of outside uh, cultures, um, occupying forces, uh, whose whose cultural influence was significant. And of course, we can think of parallels throughout history and across the world um, of peoples uh, that, that live in those realities. And then the third, the third piece was that the Torah was produced in a context in which uh, the people who produced it needed to negotiate power, which was to say that the priesthood, remember, there's no monarchy anymore. The monarchy has been destroyed. Israelites are not sovereigns in their own land. OK, the priests are now the, essentially the power elite in uh, the land of Israel. And uh, they are required by the Persian empire to have a constitution. The priests have their own scribal academy, uh, which is uh, filled with uh, Levitical scribes. Um, so they are, they are and, and Ezra is the primary liaison between the Persian empire and the Israelites. So they're negotiating power with the ruling empire. And of course, you know what happens when people have power, <laughs> they're also negotiating power between themselves and the Israelites, right? And between and and just like if you read the uh, you know the first and second books of Kings, you'll know there were good kings and bad kings. You know there were good priests and bad priests, right? I mean these these are political institutions, no less political than the American government than any other government at any time. These are political institutions, and so those political interests, along with the influence of foreign powers, along with the echo of trauma, informs the production of this of this document, right? Um, so that's the context in which it comes it comes into being. Any any questions there or clarification? Anything that anyone wants to say? Hey, can I ask a question really quickly? Yeah, of course. No, you could you could take as much time as you want. All right, just um a quick. This one's quick. Okay, so um I. Just the short version of it, though, is that I was talking to a student rabbi about the documentary thesis, and I was just wondering um, if, you know, because the student rabbi was telling me no one listens to the documentary thesis about the Torah anymore, and then I was told by someone else, another rabbi, that people do. So I don't know if you have an opinion about that. Sure, sure. So um, just let me bring everybody in. So the uh, the documentary hypothesis is a scholarly thesis that was posed in the late part of the 19th century. Uh, by Graf Kuhnen and well, most famously Wellhausen, Julius Wellhausen um, in Germany. And the theory was that the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, in fact, but the Torah in particular, is made up of multiple documents that have been woven together over time. Um, 
that we don't know who the authors were, but but they're given these names, J, E, P, and D. And they're given those names because J stands for Jehovah uh, or, or yud Hey vav Hey because there are sections of the Torah that have that special four-letter name of God. E is for Elohim, which is another name of God. P is the priestly uh, source. And D is the Deuteronomist, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and so, um, no, I, I think that the person you spoke to is, is mistaken. Uh, I, I don't think they are mistaken. Um, certainly in the 150 years since the documentary hypothesis was first proposed, uh, a great deal, I mean, libraries of research have been written on the subject, and we, we do have increasingly sophisticated ways of thinking about the production of that document. Um, what, you know, the, the thinking now is certainly there are, there are multiple voices in the text. I mean, you, you only have to, I mean, I don't know if it works as well in the Hebrew, as it, in the English as it does in the Hebrew, but if you just read the book slowly enough, you just know. You just notice it. It's like unmistakable, right? Vocab. You find vocabulary in some sections that doesn't appear in others. Pacing, narrative style. There's no question about it. Um, my my sense is, and I'm only one person. And you you know, if you have access to an academic library, just read anything coming out of Moore Seebeck, M O H R S I E B E C K. That's like the place that's publishing the most contemporary scholarship on Bible studies and their stuff is extraordinary and and maybe maybe hard to penetrate for people that are not familiar with the with the field but anyway um my sense is that the the the, the debate the debate is uh do documents precede or come after the destruction so there are some who think like especially scholars of the priestly, section there are some who claim that the priestly section came before the destruction of the first temple before 586 and there are those who say it say it came after um we know and i remember last session andy and sander made this point we know that there are oral traditions that preceded the actual production of the, of the document no question um but it seems quite clear that somewhere in the middle of the fifth century, until as late as maybe 200 BCE, so we're talking like a 250-year process, people in the scribal academies are editing and re-editing and reweaving this document um, over time. It might be like thinking about, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and then subsequent Supreme Court rulings, right? Like if you took them all together, Right. It's really an extended, multi-century long editing process of the Constitution. Right. If you think of it that way, the difference is in this case is that uh, they all got bound and published together in the Torah. Right. Um, you know, it's even a question, by the way, when the Torah even appeared in the way it did in the way that, that, that we know it, because we know, for example, because of the materials they used at that time in the ancient Near East, you know, you couldn't have a scroll that was as long as the current Torah because it wouldn't actually hold up the weight of it. It would be too brittle. It would break down. So the reason there are probably five books is because there were five different scrolls. And so you could imagine different editorial teams working on different scrolls with different editorial voices, you know. So I think the documentary hypothesis is still very much uh, the kind of consensus um, broadly the consensus with the recognition that at some point, so let's say the third century, 200 BCE, at some point there was a kind of completion of the editorial process. There was a, a kind of a, a, a final editorial stage. Um, and, and you could, it's, you could say that maybe that final editorial stage was of a single mind, right? They had a certain set of editorial, uh, interests or agendas, or they, they had a style guide that they followed, you know. Um, but but as is clear from any even relatively close reading of the text, they did not iron out uh, the, the the various voices in the text. They're, they're still very much present. I mean, one. I'll just I'll say one last thing. Um, just look for the contradictions, right? I mean, just read the story of Noah, right? Like the the. the it, the, the, the numbers are inconsistent. Sometimes it's two by two. Sometimes it's seven by seven. Well, which one is it? Right. Or read the story of Korah, you know, later on. Or you, So 
clearly uh, the editors at the time who didn't have the advantages of let's say modern word processing when they were weaving various narratives together they just didn't catch some stuff they just they just missed some stuff you know because uh, the editing was maybe by their standards it was the very best editing you could imagine but if you gave it well, who just died robert gottlieb right like if you gave it to robert gottlieb right the the editor of, of caro and right if you gave it to him like i think he'd probably have something to say about the editor editorial job that was done on the torah like there was still room for improvement you know what i mean um so uh, is that enough yes <laughs> okay good all right good there's all i'll say one other thing Aglay, if you're interested there's also a website you might want to look at called metatron m-e-t-a-t-r-o-n and they're publishing some like uh, a really like accessible. I don't mean you wouldn't. I'm not. I don't. Don't take it as an insult. I just mean like you can you can read it short. You know, it doesn't require you know technical knowledge. But they're giving you a sense of like some of the thinking that's going on right now from like younger scholars. And I just I, I think that stuff is really super interesting. You know. So and actually the question leads into really what I wanted to say next about all this. What what, I, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that. Um, you know, the Torah is a document that, it, that appears in history. It, it, it comes out of and is, is in the context of a particular moment or set of moments in history, and it's impacted by those realities. Um, and, and sometimes you can see it clearly and sometimes not so much. So, for example, you know, like in the end of the book of Numbers, uh, well, I don't know, in the 30s, chapters 30, 31, something like that, maybe later, uh, you know, there's, there's a description of a war between the Israelites and, and, the, and, the, and Midian, the Midianites. And it's pretty horrific. It's pretty horrific. Um, and if you know this historical context, it doesn't take a leap to think, oh, this is how an oppressed people was expressing their rage against their oppressors, right? By, by constructing a story that's it's fiction out of whole cloth. Right. I mean, this never happened. There's not, it didn't happen in history, but they're constructing a story where they are victorious over their oppressors. You know, you can imagine that the, the whole of this is beyond the Torah. Now, the whole of the book of Joshua is about that. And you can read the scholarship on that. The book of Joshua is is a trauma informed, you know, like rage uh, against the ruling power. You, I get that. Right. Um, I can get it and also say, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be looking at that text as a kind of guide for how to live our lives, right? I mean, Deuteronomy says the same thing, right? Deuteronomy, when you come into the land of Israel, right, it says you should wipe out the seven nations, right? It says do not allow a single life, right, to, 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 be, uh, to be maintained. It's, a, it's an explicit call for genocide, I'm not that's not it's not I'm not using that to scare you. That's what it is there. By the way, maybe in uh, in, in human history, maybe that maybe the earliest uh, call for genocide uh, in, in literature, which is a very uncomfortable thing to consider um, if you're if that book is part of your uh, you know spiritual heritage. Right. It's in there. Now, of course, now if, if I'm living in the land of Israel in the middle of the fifth century or let's say 400. And I've been living under foreign imperial rule for 200 years. And my most sacred place had been destroyed by an imperial power 200 years ago. And who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people were murdered and all the rest of it, right? I understand that I might have that kind of rage, you know, that I just want to, I, I get that. I get that. Um, but that means we also, but if we know that, we don't have to read these texts as, as all being certainly not normative, certainly not normative. And not always possessing the, um, maybe possessing maybe the most human expression of how of how we feel. Sometimes when people do things that harm us, we want to harm them back. That's a kind of very natural human thing to do. But we're able to see that and have some distance and realize, that, okay, that was the situation they were in. Doesn't necessarily mean that we have to respond that way. Last thing I want to say. As I'm sure everybody on this call knows, uh, unless you're someone who has never experienced uh, pain or trauma or suffering in your life, and if you haven't, I'd love to chat. Um, it'd be nice to hear what that's like. Um, you know, there is uh, there's some kind of mysterious learning 
that comes on the other side of of uh, of pain, of distress, of trauma. And sometimes it, sometimes it takes a very long time. You, you might you might still be in the wake of an experience like that, and you're not at the point where you're able to feel like uh, that the learning has happened. But I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that probably everybody on this call can think of a time in your life when when something very hard was happening. Something was very hard in the moment of it. Like, first of all, you were consumed by it, you know, but somehow, you know, when you when you move past it and things settle down again, somehow you realize there was some there was some kernel of wisdom in there that that, that could be mined or could be could be excavated. Um, and I, I don't know that that I, I certainly don't think like that means we should seek out pain and suffering. I mean, that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't justify it, doesn't make it, you know, necessarily uh, good or okay. Uh, but it does seem to be a, a, a truth. Um, and by the way, it's a truth in our tradition, right? You know, I mean, the, 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 the crescendo moment in the Torah is standing at Mount Sinai, right? No question about that. And uh, the crescendo moment of the crescendo moment is, is God speaking to the Jewish people, Right, the Israelites, uh, and the, what's the first thing? The first thing that's uttered: "Anochi Adonai Elohecha Sheroticha Meeretz Mitzrayim." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right. So this, like, it, uh, it's right there, right? That juxtaposition: "Anochi Adonai Elohecha." I am the Lord your God. Asherotitcha Meeretz Mitzrayim, who took you out of the land of Egypt. It's like somehow you had to like be in Egypt. And come out of Egypt to be able to come face to face with Anuchi Adonai Hecha. You had to somehow in the narrative, the person that wrote that story, right? Let's remember this now, right? These folks were writing the story to try to convey something. For the folks who were writing that story, um, I think they were trying to convey that uh, that from Mitzarim, right? Mitzrayim, which we translate as Egypt, but of course Mitzarim means the narrow place, right? From, from the narrow place, from the place where we're constricted, when we come out of that and we, we come back to a kind of sense of expansiveness, you know, we can have those moments of Anochi Adonai Lohecha where we see, where we see the presence, we understand um, that in fact, that in fact, our ability to recover from those experiences is inexplicable is mysterious and that is in and of itself the realization right so so what i want to say why, why am i saying all that is that in, in addition to all of this kind of realia of the moment in time in which this document appeared i'm also saying that one of the reasons we turn to it as a source of wisdom is that because because it was it was born out of that place it's actually because of the historical context in which it appeared that it is such a profound source of wisdom, right? Those are the people, I mean, you know, you want to seek those people out. I remember I, I had the, it's like, sometimes I feel like Forrest Gump, you know, like I was, I just showed up in all those places. <laughs> I also like chocolates, but, um, but I had this extraordinary, uh, it's like, as I'm thinking about it right now, it just came to mind. It's like, okay, you know, I can't even believe it. I had the opportunity to, to be in a very small group, to have a to be have an audience with Nelson Mandela in like in the early 1990s. Um, so he had been out, I guess when well, he came out in 86. I don't know if I've got my dates right, but he hadn't been out that long. He'd been out, you know, it's a small group. He came to London and uh, you know, 26 years, I think he was on Robin Island, right? And it's, I'm, I'm not saying it was worth it. I don't know if, it, I don't know how to make that calculation. That's a kind of math that I just don't know how to do, you know, but, uh, but the, there was, there was some, there was some deep wisdom in his presence. And I think that that was somehow um, fashioned, you know, as he was, you know, picking away at the quartz, you know, which would, which would, you know, shatter and, you know, made his eyes the way they look, you know, and his hand, remember I shook his hands. It was like, it was like holding a piece of rock, just the hardest hands I've ever felt in my life. It was very unusual, but he had a kind of a wisdom. You can go on to the, uh, you know, Shmuley's done an amazing job. You go on to the learning library, like the people he's spoken to. I mean, it's like unbelievable, you know, just, just listen to the people who are over 75 years of age. 
Doesn't matter who they are. Just listen to them. You know, like they, <laughs> they just, they're, okay, so that's the point, right? So what I'm saying is now as we transition from, you know, what we've been doing, which is like the history and the context and the whatever, what I want to move to now is kind of the wisdom, hopefully, not mine, but the Torah's. And what I want to say is that the wisdom comes through because of the crucible from, from within which it came into being, right? Um, if you haven't already, this is the moment for you to just take a second and think about the crucible from within which you came into being. That's the, that's the summary. So let's talk about this Torah thing. You know, how do we, how do we read it, right? So, you know, Jews are funny people, you know, <laughs> to, to paraphrase that line, you know, uh, you know, everybody's funny. Jews are just only a, just a little bit more funny, you know, like just funny people. So Jews read the Torah in these very unusual ways. We actually read the Torah, but we don't really read it. It's very funny. So <laughs> let me tell you what I mean first, right? First, we, we, we read it this way. We, we read it by chanting it. So it's, int- it's an unusual way to read. I don't know how many people on here, on here uh, um, engage in, uh, in chanting the Torah uh, on, a, on a Saturday or on a, on a holiday, if you've ever done it. Um, uh, I, I love to. It's, it's, it takes me an enormous amount of time to prepare, so I don't do it very often, but I love doing it. Um, um, it's an interesting an interesting way to read right reading is chanting um and uh, you know i'm just going to move through these i'm not going to add commentary but you'll as i'm going through you'll think about your experiences of chanting or or being present in chanting right so that's one kind of reading and uh, make in, in case it's not clear it should be of course i'm using the word reading in a broad sense but we do that with language right you know like when we when we text someone we might say well we'll write to them Yes. You know, so it's okay to use the word reading in this kind of broad way. So that's one way we read. Well, another way we read is same picture, right? Well, another way we read Torah is by listening to it. Most Jews who encounter the Torah encounter it by listening to it. So they they read it by remote control. Right? Somebody else reads it and they listen. Right. Which, by the way, is, is kind of like it's like reading, but you're just using another person's body to do it. Right. So reading is listening. It's an interesting, interesting way to engage with the text. Right. Then we have reading as learning. Right. People may be familiar with this as well. You know, like you go to some class or you go to a house of study or a bait midrash or a seminary or you go to the synagogue and you're doing the, I mean, I love the high-fiving. I can tell you, I spent eight years in seminary. We didn't do a lot of that. I wish it's so much happier than my memory of being in seminary. But I had a great time, but it wasn't like this. It was very serious. We were very serious in seminary because we thought it was so important. But um, but this kind of reading, right? You know, you, the, the dictionaries are out and you're you're trying to like pull apart, you know, what the text means. I remember like it, when I was in seminary, you know, the morning study period was four hours. And if you if you completed a line of text, one line of text in four hours, you felt like you had a great day. You know, it's like it's just this extraordinary, you know, close, close reading. Right. So that's another way. Then we have the, uh, then we have a type of reading, which is the type of reading that the least amount of people do. Right. And that's reading as reading. I mean, how many people here, I mean, you know, maybe everybody here is going to put their hand up, you know, and say yes. But how many people here have like picked up the Torah to read it like the way you read a book? Yeah, Glea, I'm glad you're here. It's really great. But you know the truth that that is pretty rare. It's pretty rare. People don't read it, right? And there are these lovely ways you can read it. You know, Harold Bloom and David Rosenberg, right? Go back to the documentary hypothesis, right? They peeled out the J section and they kind of translated it and wrote it with a narrative flow. And you could just read J, right? And this book on the right came out just in the last year. It's just magnificent. It's just magnificent. Um, this is the P section, the priestly document, and it has a 50-page introduction that is the very best, I think, uh, uh, accessible introduction to kind of the scholarship of the Bible for a general reader. The best I've ever read. It's magnificent, right? But we never do that. I mean, some people do, but very rarely. Like to actually read it as a reading book, right? It's just a funny thing, right? Okay. And then, of course, you know, then we have this other type of reading. Reading is writing. 
right? Which is another way, right? Keep in mind, in the ancient Near East, right, the, the, the primary ways that people came into contact with the Torah was by listening. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? They would go to the marketplace and people would read it out loud and people would hear it, right? And that was for the general public. But for the, for the elite, you know, the, the priest and whatever else, right, the scribes, the way they encountered it was by writing it, copying it, right? They would copy it over and over again. They would write it out, okay? Um, so we have all these interesting ways of, of encountering uh, the text. And, uh, and uh, it's just, it's just I, I think, just interesting to point that out and just to think about well, what's going on there, you know, there's a playful side of me, but but also half serious, that thinks of all of these ways of reading but not reading, because remember, reading as reading is very rare, very rare, right? Okay, you ready? I'm going to say it. but I, I, And actually, as I'm thinking about it, it's like I'm realizing it's not so playful. I think I'm being pretty serious. I think there are all ways to actually avoid encountering the text. I remember when I was in, when I was in seminary, I remember that uh, the Rosh Hashiva Chaim Bravender, right? Shmuley, you were with him, right? You learned at Bravender's, right? Um, I remember him saying that uh, he said, you know, when when you go to shul on on Yom Kippur evening for Kol Nidre, you know, he said, you know, sometimes they're singing the melody, people are crying sometimes. You know, I've seen that. He's like, what are they crying about? I mean, if they read the text, they would. Have, and he said, better that we don't translate it for them. Because the emotion they're experiencing has nothing to do with the words, right? It probably has to do with sitting in shul with their bubby, you know, when they were younger, or it has to do with whatever it has to do with, right? Beautiful things, painful things, whatever it has to do with. Maybe the first time in the year they stopped for five minutes. And maybe just like the pain of living for a year, just right? whatever the reason is, right? Um, and there's something about you know, prayer being in Hebrew that serves as a kind of prophylactic. It like protects us from what the words actually say, because if we really paid attention to what the words really said, it would be, it would be, it would be hard, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm playing off of that. I think there's something about the way we encounter Torah that like it, it saves us from having to confront the text because, because sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's just icky. Sometimes it's, it's exciting. Sometimes it's just boring. And so, like it's all that stuff, you know? And sometimes it's just like, it's from a culture 2,500 years ago. And it's like, what is this about? You know? And so there's a reason why people don't read it as reading because it would, it takes a rare kind of person and you can either take that as a compliment or as an insult, but it takes a rare kind of person. <laughs> I'm being playful now. It takes a rare kind of person to be able to like put themselves through reading that thing. I mean, I, I wrote the darn thing, right? So you know what kind of person I am, right? I mean, I copied the thing out word for word. So, okay, I'm one of those kind of, but, but it, so I want to say, so, so what I want to say is, is I, I, I want, I want to, I, I want to offer a, a kind of reading where we actually read the text, but we read it in a way where we can actually, we, we can maybe, we can maybe confront it, whereas maybe we've been trying to avoid it. Um, um, and the way to do that, I'm proposing, here's the, the Darren hypothesis. You may remember I said this last week. The way we do that is we will, we will spend time asking what does the text mean, sure. But, uh, but what we need to spend more time doing, and we won't do a lot of it in real time because I, I, it's taken me 25 years that I've been working on it. I'm just giving you the short version. Um, um, the way we'll get there is by asking ourselves, you may remember the question, asking ourselves, what would the person have had to have known to have written this, right? How can we take their perspective, right? How can we shift our orientation not to be looking at the text, but to actually move behind it and look through the text. You know that, that line uh, when Moses says to God, you know, show me your face. You know that line? 
And God says to Moses, nobody can see my face and live, right? But he goes past him and shows him the back of his head, right? God shows Moses the back of God's head. Yeah, so there's lots of ways of interpreting that text. I, I don't profess to have the, the, the correct, I don't think there's any correct way to interpret it. But the way I like to think about it is like, if you can see the back of God's head, you can also see what God sees. You can see in the same direction, right? So, so there's something about a, a, reading a text, entering an art form as it might be, and even another human being, and like inhabiting their world for a little while, seeing it as they see it, hearing it as they hear it, smelling it as they smell it, as I blow out the candle in my, in my garage, you know, like just what is that like? What is that like? So what I'm going to try to do in the next three sessions, we're going to do zero, uh, practice zero to close it out, is I'm going to try to do that for you and a little bit with you. Okay? That's what we're going to try to do. Okay. Questions, comments, anything you want to say? Let's try to do practice zero in eight minutes. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Practice. Uh, oh, no. So, oh, no. Good. Okay. I, I missed the section. Great. We'll, we'll say practice zero till next time. That's great. We'll, we'll close with spiritual handbooks. Spiritual handbooks. Okay, so we have all these ways of reading the Torah. Uh, and I'm saying, this is the last part of the title, right? Practicing Judaism in the 21st century, rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook. Okay, spiritual handbook. Okay, so, I, you know, I gave Shmuley the title, I don't know, three months ago, four months ago. But, you know, I, I, I don't love the word spiritual. It's, it's a kind of like, I don't know what to do with it. I'm not against it. But I just, it's a little bit, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do about it. But uh but let me tell you what I mean by that. And this will give you a, just a last piece on how we're going to approach the text in the next three weeks. Here's what I mean by, I don't mean spiritual handbook. I just mean handbook. Here's what I mean by a handbook. When I started on my, um, in the first session, you may remember I shared the, um, that uh, some, of, some of the thinking about this class came out of this kind of intersection in my own spiritual life between Judaism and Eastern Eastern wisdom, Buddhism, meditative practices, right? I talked about that. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed in my now seven-year encounter with Buddhism is uh, the, 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 uh, the large variety of handbooks that exist in uh, both Eastern and Western forms of Buddhism, handbooks. Um, and that's literally what they are. They are they're manuals. They're manuals. They, they tell you, do this. Uh, this thing might happen. Uh, do this other thing. This other thing might happen. When I did it, here's the experience I had. Like, they're, they're just wonderful. They're wonderful because they, um, in ways that I think Judaism and, and, and um, uh, certainly Judaism, I know it best, but maybe some other traditions too, in the ways that some other religious traditions don't do quite so well, um, they invite you into um, what it might be like to have the experience they're telling you about. And the way they do that is by describing it from their own perspective. They're showing you, they're showing you what it looks like from, from where they stand. Um, and then providing very clear instructions that you can try. You know, you could just try them. And of course, you know, the, the Buddha was very clear. Try it for yourself, right? I mean, the, you know, the, try for yourself. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, you know, whatever. It's up to you, right? Be, be a light unto yourself, I think was the apocryphal uh, dying words that came from his mouth, right? Be a light unto yourself. Um, so I loved that. I, and I think I probably loved that because if I hadn't, when I was 18, gone to Israel to study in seminary, I would have gone to university and, and studied electrical engineering. Um, so there's a part of me, you know, I have a kind of an engineer brain and I like that. Like, get, you know, I can't cook from scratch for the life of me, but you give me a recipe, I'll, I'll do a pretty good job. I'll do a pretty good job. Just follow the steps, you know. And if the first time it doesn't go so well, I just can pay attention and do it again and do it again and do it again. So that's what these handbooks in, in the Buddhist tradition do. And they kind of make a promise that they deliver on. They say, I mean, if you're, in, I, I, I should say, I, I maybe that's arrogant, but I, in my experience, the thing they said that they were offering seemed to be, if you stuck with it, you, you were able to 
uh, to realize it. And I, I found that to just be wonderful. Uh, I found that to be wonderful. And it made me think about Judaism and that Judaism lacks that to a large extent. In the, in the Orthodox Jewish community, or for those parts of the Jewish world that follow halakha, Jewish law, you could say there really is a practice, there really is a handbook. Right? I mean, there's, there's literally a handbook. There's a book that documents like how you should behave and act pretty much for every waking moment of your life. Um, most Jews are not living a halachic lifestyle and not living a life according to Jewish law. Most Jews are not Orthodox, of course. Um, and even, even from the perspective of Jewish law, there's, there's, there's not that much about like, what's the inner experience like, you know? So for example, you know, I don't know, uh, the, keep Shabbat, you know? Okay. I get it. Keep Shabbat. You know, let's take the traditional version, you know, don't use electricity or don't carry things or don't cook. Oh, don't light a fire. Okay. You know, what's supposed to What's supposed to happen in here? What's my what, what's my what's my perspective of mind when I'm in that state? You know, how am I supposed to? Um, what, what what experience am I looking for? How do I know if I'm doing it well? Um, it could be you could say from the halachic perspective, from the perspective of Jewish law, the way you know if you're doing it well is either you follow this stricture or you don't, right? Either you turn on the light or you don't turn on the light. Could be, could be. Um, but for most other folks who are interested in Judaism, who interact with Jewish life, who are interested in spiritual exploration, uh, there's, there's more that's been published in the last 40 years, but there's precious little, um, and there's very little that I see in terms of uh, the foundational text of the Jewish tradition, which is, which is the Torah, which is how could you read the Torah as a kind of a handbook that might offer us practical guidance, uh, not only for states of mind and states of being that we, we might want to cultivate, but also very clear practices for how to do it. And so that's what I mean by rereading the Torah as a spiritual handbook. I'm just going to take you back and we'll close with this to that quote from Sylvia Borstein. You remember Sylvia Borstein um, was quoting Jonathan Omerman about why Jews are so interested in Buddhism. Right. And she said that Buddhism that had the Buddhism that had come to the West offered a clear explanation for suffering and tools for the direct personal realization of a peaceful mind. That's quite an offer. A tradition says, we'll give you the tools for the direct personal realization of a peaceful mind. But that's what it offers. Um, it required practice, not affiliation. You don't need to send anybody a check. Right. Or you do have to, although you probably did have to pay for this class. Uh, it was a great spiritual path that promised transformation. Right. Um, and so I, what I learned when I kind of uh, when I uh, kind of brought my my attention back from seeing things through that lens back to the Torah and the Jewish tradition as a whole, I realized that, uh, that, that one could do the same thing. And let me be clear here as we close. Not because I'm trying to save Jews from Buddhism. I, I, I don't care about that. Um, I'm, I'm a syncretist. Uh, I hope you are too. I, I wrote a book making the case that we all are anyway, whether you like it or not. Um, I, um, but I do think people uh, will benefit from clear and simple guidance. Uh, like if, if you're taking the class, probably... I mean, maybe you're just a friend and you're, you're just trying to, you know, be supportive of me. And that's great. I'll take that. But for other people, you know, like you probably took the class, whether you're aware of it or not, because you're, you're looking for something or something about that title. You, you, you. So I'm, what I'm here to say is in the next three sessions, I'm going to try as best I can to, uh, to give you a little bit of that. Um, and uh, I don't know if I can guarantee a, a, a clear and, and peaceful mind after three sessions. Um, but I think what I can guarantee is if you try the things I'll offer you, uh, you'll be moving in that direction. <sighs> it's two o'clock. Any, uh, any last words from anyone else? Question, comment, heckle? Yeah, Glea. Hey, this might be a heckle and I'm really sorry. Okay, but <laughs> okay. this might be a heckle. I'm really, really sorry about this though, but all right. So when we're talking about, you know, handbooks and structures and stuff like that though, okay, I'm a little crazy. So bear with me on this one though, but 
the way that I'm kind of seeing um, things, I once classically trained, I was once classically trained as a singer and Baroque music, the composer would give you you know, like the basic structure, but you have the A section, you sing the basic structure, B section, you sing the basic structure. You go back to the A section and you ad lib and you just improv a bunch of really high notes and trills and stuff like that. And it's really up to the singer. So is there a way, I mean, just hypothetically though, that you can use the Torah that way also? Kind I, of love, I love that. Uh, I love that. Um, yes, yes. Um, first of all, um, the, 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 the example is very apt, um, because it, it, the, the musical analogy is just perfect. You know, I mean, I, you know, I got a couple of, couple of stringed instruments here, you know, you know, you, you spend a lot of time, you know, on chords and scales. Uh, and then if you're lucky, you get to a point when, and I learned this from uh, who's not here with us today, from my my guitar uh, teacher uh, and dear friend Sander. You know, you get to some point where you realize like it's all one key. You can play any note, right? So you, you right, you, you, because you just, you know, it, something happens. That's a longer conversation. Uh, so yeah, the same is true for the Torah. So there, so there's a, and this is true for any spiritual path. You know that line, it, this is a wonderful line from the Buddhist tradition, right? If you see the Buddha by the side of the road, kill him. You know that line? If you see the Buddha by the side of the road, kill him, right? So there's a lot of possible, you know, meanings there. But I think the meaning, to me at least, is quite is quite clear. And that is, there's only, there's only one spiritual path, and that's yours. That's the only one there is. It's yours. All the other ones are ultimately ways for you to figure out which ones are not yours and they may help you along the way they may they may help you along the way but if you if you stick with one of the other ones then you'll never find your own one so you then you're just living out someone else's you know kind of spiritual experience um once once a person has come to that to that place where they inhabit themselves, the reality of their lives, the truth of what they are, um, then the Torah, it's like, it just becomes like the neck of the guitar. Like you can, you know, you can understand, like, let me give you an example. You know, I said before, you know, about all the, 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 the complex nature of the Torah, the, the various emotions and all the stuff that's going on, you know, at the same time, once you get to that place, let's call it mastery fluency you know with the text you start to understand that when Maimonides in the 12th century in the eighth of the 13 principles of faith said that every single letter right of the Torah every word every verse every chapter every book was dictated directly from God to Moses and Mount Sinai you understand of course that's the case of course that's the case right because well maybe I'm not being clear <laughs> It's not a historical claim. He's not making a historical claim. He's making a spiritual claim. But by which I mean to say that that perspective is one, and I'm sure that Maimonides knew this, is the same perspective as, of real, as realizing that, that every person is a divine utterance. Everything is a divine utterance. Oh, oh, all of this... Whoever, who knows what it is? I have no idea what it is, but all of this is mysterious and miraculous. And the capacity to see that all the time allows one to open any text on any page and read any verse or any sentence or any paragraph and, and have that realization. Absolutely, absolutely. When you said last week, right? You said like sometimes you just open it and there's, an, there's like an answer there. There's guidance there, right? Well, I, I, allow me to superimpose my perspective onto you. You can reject it. And I know you will. Like, that's that's not the Torah. That's you. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> it's you. you have a, now, you have a certain kind of a relationship with that document that allows you to, to you have confidence or trust or whatever it is that allows you to, right? But uh I mean, I mean, everybody on this call knows this. I mean, you read a good novel or a bad novel, 
there are moments of illumination. You know that. You, you, you watch a good TV show, you watch a bad TV show. There are moments of illumination, right? You have a, a, a pleasant experience or you have a painful experience. There are moments of illumination. Why? And this, I, I will stop, Alex, I promise. This is the last word and this will be where we begin next week. Why? Because it's all God. You too. It's kind of funny because Maimonides is the guy who said that people who only follow the rules and, you know, he kind of called them ignoramuses. So <laughs> if you only follow the rules and there's nothing beyond that there's no philosophy or anything like that but then he kind of gets very systematic so <laughs> well we contain multitudes awesome. okay, all right see you next week thanks for joining us for this episode of the valley bait midrash podcast remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs learning opportunities and more ways to stay connected if you enjoyed learning with us today support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.